0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it is spot on, 4 o'clock. It's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6. This week talking to Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence and she'll be talking mainly about Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. Also the trial in occupied Western Sahara of a young journalist, Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association, looking at election results in both Australia and the Philippines with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy. The IPAN conference coming up, Independent, Peaceful and Australian Network, and that's coming up early August. Seems a long way away, but it's not that far really. At would be Shirley Winton. And looking at Nakba and the results of the Eurovision song contest in Tel Aviv with Palestinian activist Mai. May. But first let's hear from Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane Lister, when the people spoke, the one poll that matters, and the result confirmed the cliche, clearly articulating the truth that we simply cannot afford to save the planet, but which, taking a positive uh, out of Saturday, will fry and die in a very healthy economic state. We we can't afford to destroy that economy by allowing the refugees from our sundry invasions around the doomed globe on the coattails of the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world to get anywhere near true blue aussie and destroy our jobs although refugee is a misnomer for no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people we can't afford not to cut penalty rates of those lower than low paid workers who can afford to lose them and help their poor caring employers At the other end of the scale, the needy, filthy rich who pay no tax will continue to get their handouts from those who do, and quite quite frankly, they deserve every cent. Well, the list of humanitarian and compassionate outcomes goes on, but what more would we expect from the caring business class party? So caring a party, it has caring in its name. So as we look forward to the next three years, our one consolation is that Socialist Party Supremo brackets temporary little Billy Shorten ambitions ambition was thwarted, and it couldn't happen to a nicer fighter for his class. Yet the irony is, the policies the gloating victors are blaming for the Socialist Party's rejection are about the only decent things he's ever said, whereas almost any other opposition leader with those policies in the context of this election would have won. No one else could have sounded so artificial, a cardboard replica of a politician, yet since then every shot of the loser is with Chloe staring lovingly, and I must say, sincere or feigned, I could never look at Little Billy lovingly. After all, he's just delivered us three more years of scuttle them and that lot. Regular listener might recall the week that was did say week one of the campaign that Little Billy seemed to be doing his best to snatch defeat from the jaws of. Hoping to give a Philip to the Socialist campaign, former Big Supremo, our great and beloved former Prime Minister, Nuclear Hawk himself, decided to die. And I think his legacy has been best expressed over the years by the caring business class, which continually pleads with the Socialist Party to be like Nuclear Hawk's government, the architect of neoliberal economics, and his biggest gift to his caring business class cronies, the smashing of, the undermining of the Trade Union. Movement, the massive decline in union membership, expressed beautifully by another former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, that Nuke was more caring business class than socialist, more caring business class than socialist. Gee, we never noticed that. And the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages said Nuclear Hawks' economic reforms were able to be achieved so easily because they had the full support of the caring business class party. They really did. He was the best Socialist Party Big Supremo by far. He really was. And how can we question a Socialist credentials with such glowing tributes from that lot? The other morning on the Radio National Brekkie Show, Fran Kelly kept calling him great, which I must say, grated on me. Let's hope his big business and CIA and other questionable mates appreciated his role. The final tribute was not a socialist government, but a vote for neoliberalism, that expression of the great virtues, greed and exploitation. So, in the ongoing government, Hawke's legacy will be remembered, much more than if the socialists had won, and he'd like that, showing he had a foot in both camps in death, as he did in life. Although, in fairness to little Billy and his lot, we would have... Still had a government dedicated to those neoliberal virtues, unless by fairness he meant the eradication of greed and exploitation, in other words, the destruction of capitalism. But we don't think he meant that. Oh, let's be honest, he had no intention of eradicating greed and exploitation, just making them seem a bit less malignant. When I mentioned Tiny a bit more for the bosses, A pain stabbed at my heart, a giant sense of loss, a tragic loss for satire. Thank goodness we still have Constable Peter Duffer and Barnacle. Imagine if we'd lost them all in one fell swoop. With caring returned, speaking of caring employers caring, see poor McDonald's may owe millions to workers after paying sub-award rates and no penalty rates for years after signing a deal with that non-evil union, the Shopping the Workers' Union. And the other usual suspect, big retailers, say their wages bills will increase by millions because they now have to pay penalty rates. And until Saturday, possibly even higher penalty rates if the socialists had won because up till now they had an agreement with the shopping the workers union that they not pay penalty rates at all in return for a bit extra in the pay packet but given they're complaining paying penalty rates will cost them millions and they'll have to find ways of saving those millions with a bit of automation playing with workers shifts making the customers serve themselves that sort of offset thing does this mean could it possibly mean the caring employer union deal cost the workers millions? That it was a good deal for the caring employers and a not-so-good deal for the workers for whom the shopping the workers' union works its guts out? Ah, thank goodness we've got some non-evil unions to understand the delicate flower that is the economy. Following that item we reported last week, the so, sorry coppers bashing the wrong bloke in Fitzroy, the Secretary of the Militant Union, another non evil union, defended his members and said they had done nothing wrong and made a lawful arrest. So obviously, sending suspects to hospital is doing nothing wrong. Their modus operandi and arresting an innocent bloke by mistake is a lawful arrest. Well, he, the secretary, is an ex-copper, which would explain his logic and brain power. In the big wide world of brain power assisted by heavy inbreeding, Her Most Gracious Majesty's grandson, the bald one who keeps producing new little mouths for the British taxpayer to feed, said he sometimes felt anxious. Um, what, anxi- what anxieties, bald one? I get extremely anxious that the people might wake up. To what leeches and bludgers we are. Oh, yes, that would be a worry. Big worry. Big, big worry. Across the Atlantic, big, big worries expressed in the war room, which is any room they're in, at the White House as big supremo Donald Trample the poor, his secretary for U.S. of World State Mike Pompeo or else, and his trained killer advisor John upon discuss a bit of invasion, having uncovered this credible evidence of evil, evil Iran plotting to invade the U.S. of and the whole world, which is the same thing, but which they can't tell us, presumably for security reasons and surely as credible as the proof former secretary for train killing colon as in full of shit pal to the profiteers produced at the un of the us of the un of the world to expose evil iraq brimming with weapons of mass destruction nuclear warheads and an army ready to invade the world now as us of train killer ships aircraft carriers crammed with lethal peace-loving bombers patrol off the coast of iran In U.S. of the world waters, how silly, how stupid, how naive of evil Iran and what a coincidence. Just as the U.S. of train killer arsenal arrives, evil Iran attacks Saudi oil tankers and sends drones to bomb good, good lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, just as giving the good old U.S. of an excuse to send in, or sorry, forcing the U.S. of to send in the Marines to liberate yet another nation, showing how evil, evil the bad guys are. But I hope no one thinks for one moment they, the U.S. of, might have done it themselves. After all, evil Iran's crime is sticking by an agreement, and the commander-in-chief knows that in caring business, you can't trust anyone who sticks to an agreement. Bad, bad. Yes, but but what's your really big anxiety, we asked John, built up on? I get extremely anxious that they might wriggle out of our invasion... Imagine that anxiety on top of evil, evil Venezuela, which keeps slipping out of our reasons to invade. The guy we chose has turned out to be a bit of an idiot. How hard is it to overthrow a government elected by ignorance, by an ignorant people? Chile, among many others, show how easy it is. It's maddening. Ah, well, that probably explains why he is so mad. How commendable for the U.S. of, with all its own domestic problems like saving women from themselves by making them criminals when they have no right to control their own bodies and need men to do it for them, to so care about the people of Iran and Venezuela, knowing their overwhelming need is a new government. We do have to marvel at the audacity of the U.S. of when Donald says they will have to invade if the sabre-rattling doesn't stop, but then the only one sabre-rattling is... Finally, Lord Rupert of Wapping is already on his favourite campaign, Build the East-West Link, Wapping SIN, P1 this morning. Just build it. A powerful alliance of transport and industry groups has urged, etc., etc. The powerful alliance being the Master Builders Profits Association, the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, and the RACV. My word, there's a representative bunch. Who know the answer to ballooning traffic congestion is to build more and more roads or widen and extend existing ones to provide more and more space for the congestion. It's worked a treat for years. Good
1: afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. And tomorrow morning I think you might be just going to hear that word election once more on city limits from nine o'clock. I'm speaking now with Cathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Ask her, Kathy, about Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. One, unless public pressure increases, will also be imprisoned in the US under inhumane conditions. It appears that the US establishment will go to whatever ends to punish those who expose their war crimes around the world. Beginning with Chelsea, she's already paid a high price for leaking government documents to WikiLeaks, a sentence of 35 years in prison. That was commuted after seven years, but now she's back there in solitary confinement. How much of what she revealed pertained to Afghanistan?
3: Well, you know, I believe that certainly what she revealed gave people a sense for the lack of oversight in those both- Iraq and afghanistan and the kind of training that enabled people to take steps that were definitely in violation of basic human rights because of using conventional armed forces against civilians and this happened repeatedly and we should be thanking kelsey manning for the information that she presented at great risk to herself and instead she's being persecuted and i think her case is being used as a deterrent But people in Afghanistan have felt very, very grateful. Those who know have felt very, very grateful to Chelsea Manning for making their situation clearer to them, the young Afghan peace volunteers, whom I know certainly could uh, tell you exactly what happened in the attack on the journalists in Iraq. And I remember as young boys when they were watching that, and they were amazed, and they were deeply, deeply disturbed. And, of course, with the regular attacks on civilians through aerial terrorism in Afghanistan, they had good reason to be
1: concerned. Had any of those young boys actually witnessed any of those attacks?
3: I have been in touch with one young man who told me that in his home province, a drone attack had killed his brother-in-law. And in another instance, A young man told me that his relatives said that the bombings are so frequent and so intense on a mountainside in the Vargas province that they can no longer find a place in which to bury the dead. And I've also been told repeatedly that in some instances, well, really, in every instance, I can say this, in every instance for the young people that I know in Kabul, you wouldn't ask, has anybody in your family been killed? by the war you would ask who in your family was killed in the war and so what's happened is that because of desperation because of poverty because the war has displaced so many people and caused so much corruption the only jobs available to the young people's family members tend to be within the military that's the only way that they can get by and you know we're seeing this In a very widespread way, I think we could speak about a proliferation of this kind of reality. You know, right now in South Sudan, desperate people there are vulnerable to Saudi Arabia offering to pay families $10,000 if the family will turn over one of their children, youngsters, teenagers under 20 years of age, to fight in Yemen, even though these youngsters may not even know where Yemen is. So I think this is, this is becoming increasingly a reality that's gone unchecked. The United States is in direct support of Saudi military operations. And so, again, Chelsea Manning ought to be thanked for having sounded the alarm, raised before people the visual representation of realities that they otherwise would not have seen. And, of course, what the way it was mediated to us was, through the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And so, you know, if Joanna Songz was wrong to publish, well, what about these other mainstream organizations that sold many, many, many newspapers and burnished and, uh, you know, increased career opportunities for people working with them, while Joanna criminal. is, is considered to be a criminal? Chelsea Manning is... Uh, under lock and key, uh, she has no idea what her future is going to be. She's got no way of earning an income in order to secure uh, a place to live. Uh, when she is released, she's got lawyers who are constantly making appeals to uh, stop this punishment and persecution that keeps her in solitary confinement. She stays strong, but uh, until her case comes before a grand jury and she has said quite clearly she's got nothing to say to a grand jury she's said it all already until that happens she will be kept under confinement and people wonder is that in relation to
1: the case with juliana found june the first a special day of support for and thanks to chelsea well you know there have been encouragements to people to continue writing to her
3: to write their thanks to her Certainly, to observe a special day, and I've seen that on Twitter. And I think this is important to help keep her morale up. And also, I think it's important that we listen to her. Uh, And if there's not something forthcoming from her solitary confinement now, then we should go back and reintroduce ourselves to the video footage, you know, that stunning and terrifying video footage of the U.S. soldiers in Iraq in a helicopter getting uh, the go signal to keep on shooting, to keep on killing, even after bodies had been evacuated and removed to a vehicle. There was a desire to shoot the vehicle. It was a kind of a bloodthirstiness. And, uh, you know, I think we have to show support for whistleblowers. You know, as it comes out now, we're seeing that there was a special operations force, Commander Gallagher, and he had, uh, in Afghanistan been responsible for shooting a young girl in her print dress and shooting her daddy he was responsible for other crimes and the people underneath him wanted to sort of blow the whistle and turn him in and they were intimidated and warned and told forget about it. You know, things could happen to you and your career and finally enough of them banded together and turned in this a higher up officer who had in fact been, you know, kind of removed and perhaps was going to lose some financial benefits, but he certainly wasn't being brought before a court-martial. Now now that has happened because whistleblowers were encouraged to speak up.
1: What does the law in the U.S. say about whistleblowers? really very
3: spotty. John Kiraku spent time in prison because of his whistleblowing. Daniel Ellsberg could have spent many years in prison, there are some harsh, harsh penalties, uh, which certainly Chelsea Manning is experiencing right now. Sometimes there will be an intervention by a higher court, which is what saved Ellsberg uh, when he revealed the Pentagon Papers. But if, uh, you know, if you're not very, very careful about what you do, I think about Reality Winter, uh, sorry, and she's now going off to serve a sentence. There's a desire to create a deterrent, it's been true, under every administration, certainly including the Trump administration, although maybe President Trump might have some reason to wish that uh, there wouldn't be so much of an inclination to lock up people in his government.
1: With Julian, this is sort of happening all around the world, isn't it? An attack on any journalist who tells the truth or exposes lies.
3: Well, this is very frightening. We see this in... um, autocratic, oligarchic rules from China to Turkey to Russia, and you would like to think that countries like the United States where in the past there weren't such severe penalties as you would find in some place like Saudi Arabia where people are beheaded, in Iran, terrible, terrible prices being paid by human rights lawyers subject to, uh, I think, eight years in prison and 127 lashes of the whip, and these are hideous. And and forgive me, I may not have the potential prison sentence, right? So you would think the United States would want to green light a more humane, a more insistent free press maintenance. But uh, now it's looking as though the United States is sending signals so that people can say, well, if it's good for the United States, it's good for us, we'll persecute our journalists.
1: What you've been talking about, Kathy, is the costs of war on people around the world impacted by war and those who exposed the crimes. It's far greater than that, isn't it? Can you talk about your paper, Can We Divest From Weapons Dealers? Well, the world came very close to
3: another uh, nuclear bombing. Um, you know, the, the, there could have been an exchange of tactical nuclear weapons between India and Pakistan, and it was averted in part because... India's conventional weaponry is in, um, I suppose, more antiquated shape than would be required to to actually go to war, and so both sides backed down. Now, that to me is good. That's great news. Well, in a way, it's good news for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics and Boeing, because they now can go to India and go to Pakistan and say, Hey, you really need some new weaponry, don't you? And then that helps them sell their weapons. And meanwhile, you know, you've got Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the other countries in a coalition of countries who have been mercilessly pounding Yemen. And, uh, they then will be uh, very good customers for these huge weapon dealing groups. And you can't have whistleblowers very easily inside of uh, Yemen, for instance, because the Saudis won't let Reporters in. They won't, uh, on occasion, and if you've got very deep pockets, you might get into Yemen. But by and large, you know, if it weren't for Human Rights Watch and the International Commission of the Red Cross and the Amnesty International and Save the Children, it would be very difficult to get any reports out about what's happening in Yemen. And that's just one spot. You know, the Saudis are also um, telling the Sudanese military, we'll back you. And of course, the United States has bases all across Africa and and works very, very closely with its Saudi allies, supposed ally. So this makes it so difficult, but nevertheless, the democratic uprising in Sudan is happening. And uh, people, uh, university professors, professional students are taking cues from the Arab Spring on April uh, of 2011 and recognizing, okay, there's another way to do this. Uh, We uh, have to make sure that we don't give out names of main leaders. We're all in this together. We shouldn't settle for elections in two years. We should say, no, we want four years. We want to build civil society. So if there are gains in democracy and some measure of security, I would attribute those to people who have learned how to try to courageously Resist the militaries that the United States is actually supporting while it talks about the global war on terror.
1: Is it known how much the U.S. is spending on war at the moment? Well, you know,
3: Janet, it's so hard to say. We've got a budget for 2019 that will be at least $750 billion for war for that year. And there's also the Overseas Development Contingency fund, and that's what's used to pay for wars that aren't yet declared, uh, but that the United States is very much involved in. And then there are funds that are being paid to um, sustain people who've been harmed by previous wars, and certainly those soldiers who've returned from war and been maimed and morally injured and in, in many ways incapacitated. You, you can't just say, well, you know, you're on your own. I, I see that we must pay. And I think we should be paying reparations for past wars. But Joseph Stiglitz has continued to put it in the trillions of dollars, like 7 to $13 trillion for the cost of war, and that will be borne by next generations.
1: What percentage of the overall budget would that be?
3: Oh, you know, I believe that it's best to go along with the chart that's issued by the War Resisters League because it shows the federal budget minus the trust fund, the money that's been entrusted to a trust fund already, our FICA taxes basically and our Social Security. And so when you take what's left and you divide that up, it's it's close to 54% at least of our federal budget is going toward military and uh, so-called defense spending. It's hard for me even to say defense spending because it doesn't defend us. It jeopardizes us still further makes it even more difficult for us to cover the costs of coping with global climate catastrophe of uh, rampant diseases that are returning and recurring in other places and our own infrastructure, which is crumbling and decaying in terms of health care, education, roads, transportation. You know, there's no rational discussion to be had about solving these kinds of problems if we don't tackle our military institution but those military institutions will first and viciously go after chelsea manning for honestly and courageously speaking up speaking truth to power and truth about power i'm so grateful for what she has
1: done what else can be done to bring down the power of those corporations they seem to just be encircling the whole world now
3: well it certainly has been important for people to continue to organize demonstrations and i think um, i really hand it to code pink right now they're occupying the venezuelan embassy in washington dc as the guests of the venezuelan embassy in washington dc the foreign minister of venezuela said thank you for what you're doing you are always our guests Please be comfortable there. And so they've moved in with sleeping bags, you know, cooking, ordering out pizzas, signage. And what they're saying is if a coup uh, organized by the United States attempts to take over this embassy, you'll have to go past us first. And we're U.S. citizens and we're in touch with the government. And so uh, you can't say that the Venezuelan people have decided that they want this government to change because the United States has decided this. So that's a very clever kind of demonstration. I think it was well thought out and it's a, a good contribution to education. And I think we can't start our education efforts by saying, well, will the media cover it? We don't know, will they or won't they? But as people build stronger and stronger connections at the grassroots, our hope is that eventually it will spread out a level of education that will be mediated out further and further and further. And I believe people are starting to grapple with climate catastrophe, you know, you can't deny the changes, the radical changes in water tables, in uh, the strength of hurricanes that have devastated coastlands and changes in property values because of climate catastrophe, the crop uh, devastation in even places like Iowa where they've, you know, seeded so much to serve corn for ethanol and farmland has been laid waste. And then, of course, you know, as people see, many people wanting to come to the United States and the United States taking measures such as taking people's children away as a punishment, as a deterrent, to say, don't come here anymore. You know, that's not a way that many people want to see their uh, country behaving in a bullying and a cruel, uh, illegal, and manipulative manner. So there is, I think, rising dissent. Now, we have to acknowledge that President Trump's base is still cheering, and it's strong. And we had two years of Bush. We had two years of Reagan. And really, under the Clintons, and even under Obama, there were many, many policies that were pro-war and violated human rights and propped up the corporate status quo of weapon makers and others who were plundering. So, you know, it's hard to say that, change is coming, but we do see some very strong forces even within the Congress of the United States saying we're not going to settle for what the establishment has been handing out to us.
1: How has the Congress changed?
3: Well, it is uh, for the first time there was some momentum around uh, an effort to apply the War Powers Act and say that a, a, a president can't you know, unilaterally decide to commit the United States to war, that this should be something the Congress decides. Now, I'm not happy with what the Congress often decides with regard to war and peacemaking, but there are people within the Congress and within the Senate who started to raise the moral issues about continued support for warfare and uh, the causation of 85,700 children's deaths in Yemen. Uh, I think there are people beginning to say the war in Iraq was futile, the war in Afghanistan remains futile, that ISIS was created by these conditions. So there's dissent and dissatisfaction. And uh, I would say there has been more media coverage of late. It's not what we need to completely uh, educate. Well, I shouldn't say completely. You never can become completely educated living in this kind of comfort that we have here. But it does stir the waters enough that people might start asking more questions.
1: Can I ask you finally, Kathy, about the Kings Bay Plowshare members? What's the situation at the moment?
3: Well, Martha Hennessy just came into Mary House Catholic Worker here in New York after traveling with Carmen Trata and Claire Grady from Brunswick, Georgia, and um, Patrick O'Neill has gone off to Raleigh, North Carolina. Three are still in the Glynn County Jail, and they've been there for over a year. And that's a very long time to be in the um, pretty hideous conditions of a southern county jail with very little oversight. But the disappointment is that the government uh, decided to dismiss the motion to use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They had been a hope that maybe because of saying what that act should allow for Peace activists to say they were acting, enacting their religious freedom, uh, but, uh, the government did not accept that. So they have, the Kings Bay Police Sheriff's lawyers have 30 days and some of the, uh, defendants are representing themselves and so collaboratively they have 30 days to respond and then it, we might begin to anticipate that a, an actual court date would be set. But meanwhile, there's been a big uptick in the media coverage for the King's Bay publishers internationally and in various parts of the United States. Those who are wearing the leg irons have been able to travel around quite a bit and uh, engage in outreach and discussions and wonderful conversations at places like Fordham University, Johns Hopkins University. And uh, there's also, I think, more of a possibility for people to sign petitions online and be joined by some very notable people and keep trying to do that kind of outreach. The Pope wrote a personal letter to members of the New York Catholic Worker Community, so that was encouraging. It had to do with their vigil about Yemen that's been maintained. But there's some sense that, you know, through National Catholic Reporter and other groups, uh, the activities of Catholic activists who take huge risks are being observed in other places all around the world.
1: What's the impact of having leg irons on for every year? Well, it's very impactful
3: to one's psyche. You know, you are always under surveillance. They can always track you. Those things are heavy, and they're not good for maintaining a balanced physique. The curfew means that, you know, at 8.30, you have to be in your designated place that's been agreed to as your residence. Now, sometimes they can get permission to travel elsewhere, but everything's by permission. And if you forget, if you just make a mistake, you know, the the car ride took longer than you expected, then uh, you can actually cause your relatives a great deal of trouble because it was $50,000 to bond out. And if you're found in violation of your bond, then whoever bonded you out, has to pay that. Well, that's a pretty huge sum. You go back to jail. For some of our friends, uh, those jails are very unhealthy places. And, you know, others are, you know, Carmen is a full-time caregiver for his dad. Martha Hennessy is a grandmother and, you know, cherishes the time that she spends with her grandchildren who live in the same housing complex that she's in in Vermont. So it's a very cruel punishment to keep people on uh, such a kind of a vindictive set of rules. And, and there were people who broke into Kings Bay and they were soldiers and they re- enabled people and they, they removed weaponry, <laughs> and guns or something. And they haven't been, they're, they're awaiting trial, but they haven't been told they have to have the uh, the leg irons. Or bracelets. But really they're leg irons.
1: Are the remaining Plowshare members in the same jail?
3: Well, Liz McAllister is in the women's section of the Green County Jail, and Steve Kelly and Mark Colville are in the men's section.
1: Are they allowed visitors and ordinary things that other prisoners have?
3: Only through a very thick glass and a telephone. That's the only way they can visit anyone. They've very rarely gotten out for fresh air. The food is just slop. You could only send in to them a postcard, a pre-stamped postcard with black or blue ink, and if you make even a tiny deviation, like if you write Father Steve Kelly, because he's a Jesuit priest, he won't get your postcard. If if you don't write Elizabeth McAllister, Liz McAllister won't get your postcard. Um, So they just look for ways to be petty, and yet these three are doing tremendous good within the jail. They've befriended people, they've helped create an atmosphere of conviviality. They hold prayer time together, and that allows for reflection. They have probably had a good influence on the jailers, that's my guess. But there's nothing easy about a county jail. They regularly find ways to belittle and punish people who have as yet not even been um, charged or who have not been convicted.
1: You've had experience of that.
3: Well, I have. Yeah, I, I, I did a. I had a was sentenced to a year in maximum security prison, but I was on transport for some time of that stretch, and so I did do a, quite a tour during this transport of southern county jails. And I've been arrested for much smaller lengths of time uh, in county jails in Florida and North Carolina, and. Sometimes I lose track, forgive me, but Missouri, certainly. Um, and then I, I was in uh, Missouri in a prison in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and uh, Cass County Jail in Missouri for two months. And so, yeah, I kind of know the ropes of county jails a bit. And what I mean by no oversight is that it's up to the jailer who's in charge how to treat the prisoners and how to turn a profit. And the more federal prisoners you can get into your jail... The more money you can make because the federal payment for housing a federal prisoner is going to come through whether you give that prisoner three meals a day or one real meal and two of, you know, a box of cereal stacked up on the bars and maybe some milk, you know, for breakfast. Uh, you'll, you'll get paid whether somebody takes them out for a break or not. You'll get paid whether you have a gym or not. You'll get paid whether they're, they're not. You'll get paid whether they get business or not. So they keep on finding ways to cut costs so that they don't have to have as many jailers, so that they don't have to fix the place up or correct problems with plumbing or hire a chef that can cook or, you know, somebody to do the dishes adequately. It's just a a nasty, unfair, and extremely punitive way of doing things that uh, is very much part of the mass incarceration system of the United States.
1: And it says a lot about the... The democratic system of the United States, doesn't it? That poorer people, are, including peace activists, are treated like this. Well, and of
3: course, people are disenfranchised if they've committed felonies at the federal level in almost all states, and so they can't vote. You know, once they're out, what can they do about their situation? You know, many of them, uh, after release, are out on the streets without a job, without housing without connections nurtured with their families in many cases because they haven't been able to stand such touch. They can't afford phone calls. or Their families certainly can't afford visits. And so um, they're very, very vulnerable to being pulled back into the same activities that got them into the prison in the first place. It's a depressing
1: situation, isn't it?
3: It is depressing, and it requires people, I believe, to be going into the prisons certainly as human rights lawyers, certainly as public defenders, certainly as chaplains, but I think also as prisoners. Because when you're in, you know, you can be sitting right next to somebody on a prison bunk who says, you know, near hysterics, I can't do five more years, I can't do it. And, and you feel in your heart in a very deep way the misery and the, the mercilessness Of the punishments visited upon people who've been no threat to ordinary average people in the United States. And it's racist. Thank you, Kathy. Well, thank you, Joan, for listening to all of that. And I'll bring your good wishes to the King's Ray Fowl people who have just come back from Brunswick, Georgia.
1: Do that. Thank you very much. And that's Kathy Kelly, lifetime anti war and peace activist resident in Chicago but spends many months of the year or not so much now months but weeks of the year visiting (coughs) peace activists in Afghanistan and traveling around the United States and other places trying to spread the word
4: of peace in a very troubled world. In 2019 3CR has the power Add your support during the annual Radiothon to power radical radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3cr Radiothon 2019. Power radical radio.
1: Focus now on a young Sahrawi journalist in jail in Western Sahara, facing two years in jail if she is convicted of the crime that she's accused of. With me is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Can you fill us in, Kate, with her story? Well, her name is Naza
5: El Khalidi and She's been working for some years as a journalist, as a, needless to say, unaccredited journalist in Morocco, beca- in, in uh, Moroccan-held Western Sahara, because the authorities won't accredit Sahrawis in these circumstances. None of the NGOs can get uh, proper registration and so on. So, uh, she works for two organizations, one's called Akeep Media, which works in many languages, French, English, Spanish, and Arabic. The other one that she works for is called Rust TV, the TV for the Sahrawi Republic, and that gets broadcast through to the refugee camps so they can find out what is happening in the occupied territory. Now, because of that link, it's made a huge difference to communications and needless to say the Moroccan police want to do what they do in secret they don't want any publicity when they attack Saharawi demonstrators and pull them around and uh, drag them off the streets and beat them and and all that so just reporting about it was bad enough but the so-called crime of which she's been charged is having live-streamed police breaking up a demonstration back in December. So she was arrested and beaten and interrogated and held, and her first hearing was supposed to be in March, and it was held then, but she was immediately, the whole thing was postponed, until the 20th of May, which is last Monday. And she, uh, all getting ready for another, for the trial to take place properly this time. And it's actually been postponed again until I think it's the 24th of June. This is a game that the Moroccans play quite often. And to me, it amounts to denial of freedom of movement because without having to actually, they've charged her but without having to actually have a trial and convict her of what most of the world would regard as a non-offence. They can hold her and keep her off the streets, keep her, they've confiscated her camera and her phone and so they just have this way of kind of trying to close down that particular avenue of information going to the rest of the world.
1: Is it now where she's being held?
5: I think so, but I can't actually remember. I think it's in Alayoun, because it's only when they actually get their presence sentences that they get moved around in Morocco.
1: Now, the next thing is, who's allowed to be present at these trials?
5: International observers wanted to come and observe this trial, and there were two in particular, two groups. One was uh, two Norwegian young people, who were accredited by the Rafto Foundation for Human Rights in Norway. They arrived at Eliun Airport and they were held there for some time. No doubt the conversation's happening between the border police and other authorities and it was uh, eventually decided that they would not be allowed to enter and they were turned around and sent back home. The other group was a group of five Spanish lawyers from a number of different places, One, some from uh, Zaragoza in Spain, I've just forgotten, another place in Spain, and Las Palmas de Gran Canaria. And they were also accredited by the appropriate Spanish Professional Lawyers Association, and they were also turned back at the airport. So... It's very clear that Morocco does not want the world to see what it's doing to Sahrawi journalists.
1: Have any human rights activists also tried to get in to witness this trial or any other trial?
5: Oh, they often do try to get in, but I'm not aware of them actually sending people on the ground this time, but two important organisations have commented on the case. On the first instance, uh, Amnesty International has tweeted that they believe that all the charges should be dropped against Nazar al-Khalidi, and Human Rights Watch in New York, they have gone into more detail about the actual law that requires professional people to hold the appropriate professional qualification and to have some kind of accreditation which they call the press card and um, this is quite inappropriate for the kind of thing that they are doing then they they are just, it seems like anyone can actually post something on Facebook but that's what they don't like and when they call themselves a journalist then they invoke this law which is not really appropriate because it's not consistent with Their alleged adherence to values of freedom of speech and information.
1: Now, the government says they're unqualified, but the government won't allow them to be qualified. Is that the story? Yes, yes, that's right. That's the
5: kind of catch-22 that they're very good at doing. It's uh, all very, it just makes it all the clearer that it's a kind of trumped-up charge. And the main purpose is to keep her off the streets, as I said at the beginning, and hopefully there won't be another postponement again in, in June. In this, you know, this one to be continued, as it were. We don't know the. Has
1: there been any re- reaction from either Norway or Spain?
5: I am not sure about any official reaction on the part of Norway, but the Moroccan embassy in Norway, in in Oslo has issued a statement in which they criticise sending students as international observers, as if they're not qualified. But you only need eyes and ears, really, to be an international observer and possibly have the skills which students undoubtedly have of recording what they've seen and writing a proper report about it. That is just so much hot air, really. Are you
1: referring to the communique
5: Oh, sorry, yes, there's a communique from the um, Moroccan embassy and, uh, yes, that's what they they complain, they, they uh, denigrate these, these students. While they possibly have the sort of beginnings of a case against a student who doesn't have a professional qualification, I can't imagine that they've been able to address the same complaint against the uh, five Spanish lawyers. So it will be interesting to see if, as far as I know, they I haven't heard if they've written a similar thing in Spain about it, but uh, th- they've come up with a whole lot of other complaints. Um, for the, the 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 report in the uh, Western Sah- Western Sahara Support Group from Norway, they referred to Morocco occupying western sahara this is something that the regime hates to see and although it's technically true and the secretary the previous secretary general of the united nations even mentioned it but he was more or less hounded out of the country for saying that and so yes there's a few little things like that that they are have complained about in the reporting of that website, but um, I think that they do that for their own audience to prove that they were sympathetic to the Sahrawi cause and they like to discredit it in that way. An organisation that calls itself the Western Sahara Support Association is going to be in favour of the Sahrawi case, yes.
1: And it's not only Sahrawi... People who are going to court and being jailed for freedom of speech, Moroccans as well.
5: There are Moroccans as well. There are two other Moroccan journalists who have not only uh, been charged but they have been convicted and are uh, serving sentences—one of two years and one of five, I think—for reporting about disturbances in the Rif region. This is a notoriously unsettled region of of, uh, Morocco, right up in the north, in the Rift Mountains. And there's always been a completely independent-minded element there. I mean, not element, but uh, widespread independent feeling there. And lately, there's been a a sort of um, growing discontent about uh, Morocco. And the the particular case was, was a very horrible, ugly case where a fishmonger had a certain kind of fish seized from him. It was apparently illegal to be selling this fish. Uh, There are prohibitions about certain species and so on in the Mediterranean designed to protect fish stocks. But for him it was going to be some important revenue and they threw it into a rubbish bin, a rubbish um, bin lorry and... He dived in to get it and they, they turned on the machine and he got mangled. So there was a huge outcry about that and that's really stirred up a lot of discontent in the RIF.
1: Is the lack of freedom of speech, is it getting worse in that area or is it just this is the normal thing? Because this is a high-profile case, I'd imagine there are a lot of young demonstrators or maybe not so young demonstrators who are going through the courts being sentenced that we don't hear about? Uh, Very possibly. I'm not sure
5: if it's better or worse really, but I think the expulsions of international observers has been very much increased in the last little while. In 2013, I was fortunate to be allowed to take part. Uh, well, I mean, it was the delegation was allowed to visit uh, southern Morocco and Western Sahara. We um, went to a number of places. We were escorted everywhere by a trail of, uh, of different various kinds of uh, species of uh, secret police and all the rest. But they did let us carry out our program. And then uh, the same Organiser wanted to bring another group, I think it was in 2015, or it probably was 2015, uh, in the summer of 2015, but they were clearly camping down on international people, they didn't want her to visit her husband in prison, and... So uh, she decided that it wasn't going to be a good thing to be turned back. She didn't want to be expelled, so they actually cancelled that. But another uh, person has been documenting the number of expulsions, and I can't actually uh, give you an exact number, but it's certainly well over a 100 people have been turned back within the last 12 months, I think.
1: And that brings back the point, isn't it, that they don't want witnesses to what's happening?
5: Yes, exactly, exactly. It's pretty grim for Sahadawis living in those conditions.
1: But I'd imagine that the young activists who are doing the recordings and making the videos and the films are not going to be deterred by what's happening.
5: No, they're very brave in this way. They keep, continue and... They know that it's a vital link with the outside world and that you know, there's a limited point in Saharaways getting out in the street and making a protest if nobody knows about it. And so they see their role as a actual, actually a really vital part in there being a resistance to what is happening under Moroccan occupation.
1: Just relating to an event in the United States recently, it was at the University College of Berkeley, California, and it was to do with human rights in in Western Sahara.
5: That's right. It's the University of California in Berkeley. But um, they wanted to publicise this story about Nazar el-Khalidi. Well, they put two main reasons. One was to publicly request the cancellation of her trial, and secondly, to encourage other individuals and organisations and uh, even nations, they say, to declare opposition to the unlawful measures of the various branches of Moroccan authorities and law enforcement. So uh, they're students in human rights and uh, well-briefed on this particular subject, and they, they are um, making their own stand about it. That's right. So it, it's interesting It's a In a way, they're giving more publicity to her work around the world through imprisoning her than if they let her keep going. But uh, that's the way that they like to do things, yes.
1: And Stephen Zoonis was there? Yeah,
5: very possibly, I don't know. There was a big meeting in California with the journalist called Amy Goodman who runs a program called Democracy Now!, she was one, She's one of the very few journalists who's managed to get through this big prohibition. She was also trailed everywhere by the secret police and all the um, law and order security organisations. And at one point they actually surrounded the cafe where they were having a quick meal before going to join a um, demonstration so that they actually blocked them in and they couldn't get out. And yet, she's recorded all of this, and she's published a very striking video called Four Days in Occupied Western Sahara," and it's it's done the rounds. and And she came and screened that video and had an interesting round table, which you can log into online. And as uh, as Jan says, uh, Professor Stephen Zunes was one of those. Panel members talking about the, the, the background to this um, and the situation in Western Sahara. Uh
1: Has he been able to visit Western Sahara?
5: Oh, yes. He's done a few visits, but I'm not sure about recently. But he's gone. And because he's a very strong believer in passive resistance, in peaceful resistance, and he had... Given workshops and, and everything for some of these young Saharuis. And I remember him being very amused by the, the little day-to-day sort of sparring that would happen where students would throw banners up onto the overhead wires holding a flag of Western Sahara or something like this. And they would, the police would have to put themselves in some risk, you know, to get this thing down again or they'd, they were actually putting flags on animals, on cats and dogs who would um, run a, across into the uh, area and, and the police would have to chase these animals down the street in a rather undignified way, <laughs> get the flag from them. So he thought that was quite amusing. But, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's the sort of thing that keeps the spirits going when you're having a very, very long stay resistance like they are.
1: I know Australia is an awful long way away from Western Sahara, but there was an election, everyone knows, last Saturday, and what relevance does it have to Western Sahara?
5: Well, nothing very direct, I suppose, but indirectly it means that we've got a government that is less likely to be sympathetic to the situation in Western Sahara. And we've got a visitor coming to visit Australia from – well, she's coming from the refugee camps, actually, but uh, a Sahrawi young woman later this year. And we would like her to go to Canberra, and if there had been a Labour government, we would have had more friendly ministers or and, and, and MPs in a position to do something to, to see where we can still go and see those people but they are then sort of uh, not in such a good position to, to do a lot because of being in opposition. So that's, that's one repercussion that there will be for, for us. But otherwise, yes, we like to see people who understand about the hardships of being a refugee. Australia could be making a contribution to the United Nations support of the refugee camps the World Food Programme is constantly seeking more support because there is a kind of, uh, what do they call it, uh, charity, um, donor fatigue effect that happens and as a, um, keeping up so-called emergency food supplies over 40 years is a, a, a tough call and very urgent other demands are made on the World Food Programme, so it's really quite important that these people should get food and just in a completely humane way the children are showing signs of malnutrition how can they do otherwise when they get very very limited, very basic food supplied and not in sufficient quantity and not with the breadth of foodstuffs that are really required for a proper balanced diet, especially fresh fruit and vegetables.
1: Has the recent unrest in Algeria impacted on the camps?
5: I imagine there would be repercussions, but I'm afraid I'm not aware of exactly how it plays out for, for the Sardewis. I think that the Algerians will always remain faithful, though, to their support of the Sardewis. But who knows? I, I, hope, I hope they do anyway.
1: And many thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And the time here at 3CR and all around the eastern coast in Tasmania is three minutes past five o'clock.
4: Attention book lovers, the new international bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662 3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter.
1: Coming up now on Tuesday home time, human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. Talking about two elections, we'll start off with the Australian election. and You did a lot of work prior to the elections, didn't you, Peter?
0: I decided to uh, work with the Change the Rules campaign So since the middle of last year, really. I've been attending different events in the seat of banks in uh, southwest Sydney. Since the election campaign was called, I've done something pretty well every day of the week, not the weekends, but a bit of door knocking on weekends as well. So I saw a lot of things there in terms of just the way people were listening to the trade union message about the need for a pay rise and the need for the system to change. And then on the pre-poll at Hurstville, so it was a different thing there. There was a very intense sort of campaign with the Liberal Party, a sort of bizarre operatic type of situation where the voting place only had one entrance, but there was like 16 party workers to push the how-to-votes on the voters. So with that matched uh, by the combined uh, Labor Party and uh, Greens and Trade Union and stuff, there was it's always over 30 people. That a voter had to pass through. It was a bizarre situation. What went wrong? Well, I think uh, just looking at banks, the first week of the pre-poll, and I felt that uh, it was really running very strongly for the Liberal Party, and uh, there was quite a lot of hostility, especially among Chinese voters, of whom there were many. maybe it was even half of all the voters at that pre-poll were Chinese-speaking people. There was, uh, you know, especially initially, a huge sort of vote for the Liberals, I think. But by the second and especially the third week, the atmosphere lightened a little bit and uh, many more people were actually showing support for Labor or the Greens. And, you know, there was more optimism at the end of the three weeks. But, uh, you know... In my my own estimation, was well that at that pre-poll there were more liberal votes than than Labour votes, so um, it was. I, I suppose I was a little bit sceptical about the confidence shown by the opinion polls overall, but uh, I do take them all seriously. And and since the opinion polls had been showing the same basic outcome for a long time, you now I was certainly expecting somehow that Labour would be. Forming a government this week, and uh, it's the opposite. So, uh, yeah, by Saturday night, you know <laughs> that terrible sinking feeling, where I've been there before plenty of times, but uh, we, we were not to see any change. But, but then, looking at the at the outcome, although there was a huge euphoria on the side of the coalition, in fact they've barely moved at all for dumping Turnbull and um, putting in Morrison. So the outcome is is pretty well the same as the 2016 election, although they they seem to have one or two more seats and and Labor may have one less seat. But, you know, there was less than 1%. I think it was basically on a two-party preferred basis 0.52% shift to the Coalition and against Labor between now and the last election. So you see that the people, the voters overall are really skeptical of both major parties and, and have not given any real endorsement to either. And what votes shifted, shifted to mainly to right-wing parties like One Nation and um, Clark Palmer, uh, although they didn't do too well either. So nothing much moved. I, I think that uh, frustration among the public is, is as important a, a conclusion as any other positive you know, message that either side might claim, especially the Liberals might be claiming uh, this week. And when Scott Morrison says, you know, he loves Australians and thanks all Australians, well, clearly all Australians don't love him. <laughs> and uh, he's sort of continuing on in that sort of grand delusion and illusion that he projected during the campaign.
1: How does this compare to what's been happening in the Philippines?
0: Oh, well, I think uh, the Philippines, we saw an election the previous Tuesday for half of the Senate and the House of Representatives and uh, many local government uh, and and governorships and so on, and and city mayors. That was uh, much more torrid. uh, Because I was focusing on the Australian campaign, Uh, I didn't really go into the details of that one, but the outcome hasn't been declared yet. But the uh, administration of Duterte is claiming that all of his candidates for the Senate got elected and then zero people opposed to his policies got elected so most people in the philippines say it was a it was a massive fraud and there have been protests immediately on the streets against uh, the cheating in the elections um, as well as that there's a there's a lot of um, you know from from the uh, voting places the voting workers who are mainly teachers really complaining about the breakdown of machines and the faulty Data cards used in the computers, and um, huge delays. And at a higher level of the voting process in the Philippines, there's a device called the transparency server, which seems to be really a joke. Which uh, all the results go in and uh, in a computerised process, and uh, it took you know nine hours or something for any results to come out, and no one knows what happened in that situation or that room. Uh, where the server was located. So, uh, yeah, most people are saying that um, there was the vote shaving and vote adding proceeding in a computerised form, and you know replacing the old the old manual form which people are very familiar with in the Philippines. And besides that, there was a, there's uh, the routine of vote buying, which was also reported to be widespread. So that um, people are given cash to vote. There's also reports, you know, with with their election system, you vote in a computer and it prints out a receipt and you take it away. So people reported that they voted for certain candidates in the Senate and then the the receipt came out showing different people, which is, again, a a sign that there's been uh, tampering with the the coding of the computers. What comes next in the Philippines is uh, when, when the Congress reconvenes which I'm not not sure of the dates, and it's hard to know exactly when the Commission on the Elections will officially declare the results. But it's expected that President Duterte will try to change the Constitution by convening a constituent assembly out of the two houses of the Congress and have a majority to adopt his proposed Constitution. It's, It's a bit unclear now just exactly what the proposed Constitution is, because there's been a lot of fighting between different powerful families about how they would get a share in a proposed federal uh, republic of the Philippines. But everybody's expecting Duterte to extend his term. That is, it should finish in uh, June 2022. And that is, it's only one six-year term for a president in the Philippines. But uh, all presidents since uh, Corazon Aquino have tried to extend their terms. So, and that, to do that, they have to change the constitution. So that's the main expectation. Yeah, and uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the outrages continue in the, in the Philippines with a uh, continuing uh, body count in the war on drugs. And uh, I think we're now up to the 40th lawyer killed and the 5th judge killed during Duterte's presidency, which is just three years old uh, next month. You know, it's like a bloodbath and uh, there's, I guess with the Senate changing this way you can say that uh, the Senate is not a, not a place where any criticism of the presidency can happen the Supreme Court has been neutralised with the removal of the Chief Justice Sereno and the, the House of Representatives is, is dominated by people who support Duterte in, in the tradition of the Philippines it's just where the money is and uh, loyalty to principles and uh, policies and, and party alleg- allegiances, it, it doesn't really work there. So, uh, you know, the, the space for, you know, I guess I should say the media side as well, with the continuing harassment and second arrest of uh, Maria Ressa from Rappler demonstrates that the media is also muzzled uh, in terms of any criticism of the government's policies. So... Uh, sort of a time bomb, I guess, or a pressure cooker where you know, the, the space for people to call for change uh, and criticise what is happening is, is being closed down and therefore the, the potential for change is going to be in uh, mass protests and other forms of resistance.
1: How do you compare 2019 to the years of, or the later years of um, Marcos?
0: Well, I think that this is uh, already, you know, 2019 is one thing, but the last three years have uh, rapidly uh, demonstrated that Duterte's presidency is far worse than, than Marcos, even under martial law, formally declared all over the country. So there's been far more people killed by arbitrary violence from the state. I guess the, the, the one, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing, I think on the human rights side, You could say this is like Marcos uh, multiplied, you know, we're we're getting into factors of three or four times worse. On the the side of where Marcos sees the property, assets of uh, powerful families who were opposed to him, that hasn't happened yet, you know, in the sense of, you know, actual plunder of uh, other parts of the oligarchy. But uh, perhaps uh, something like that is starting to shape up with the intensification of you know elimination of uh, other you know significant political voices in the country just being eliminated from the congress so um, we'll we'll see what happens but the repression is intense and the response of uh, civilians who try to assert their basic democratic rights is one of tenacious you know prosecution of their own campaigns so people are not giving up they're just uh, adjusting trying to protect themselves and in fact building broader coalitions to oppose duterte's actions so i suppose you could say a a tendency to unify opposition uh, people broadly is happening Um, and and you you have to go way back to marcos the end of marcos And say in the years 86 to 89, those first couple of years of Corazon Aquino's presidency, there was a sort of the beginnings of the disintegration of the the great uh, national alliance against Marcos. And now I think we're seeing it come back together.
1: Is there an elephant in the room or is there more than one elephant in the room?
0: Well, I think in the Philippine situation, you know, you're dealing with uh, a sort of... uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It's uh, subordinate to the United States' uh, overall strategy in the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, so the the elephant in the room is that uh, governments like the U.S. government and and more and more so the Australian government are willing to turn a complete blind eye to what uh, Duterte is doing so long as Duterte continues to be a reliable base or ally for the posture, the, the broad policy developed by the United States against China, and uh, in particular the sort of careful manoeuvring of forces in the South China Sea, that is, military forces. So um, you can see in the news every week now greater... Abrasion, you know, between the United States and China, mainly on the economic and trade front, but not far behind there's, you know, pressure on the military front as well. And, and with Subic Bay, the Philippines is playing a really significant role, I think, in, in what's developing between the United States and China. And Australia also being a loyal subordinate to US policy in this way is, is committing more and more resources to the Philippines, military resources. And, you know, you you don't hear a peep out of our government. Naturally, we've been in a caretaker mode for the last uh, month or so, five or six weeks. But uh, by next week, you know, the government will be back in in an official role. And uh, I still think we won't hear any criticism of what Duterte has been doing from our government either. So I don't think we're the elephant. Uh, we're the sort of uh, the junior player there, but the elephant, of course, is uh, the United States.
1: Are other countries arcing up about it or are they all compliant as well?
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, basically everybody's complying. You know, the other, another significant player is Canada and uh, another, you know, lesser one, but an important one is the European Union. So uh, the Canadian mining industry is very keen on uh, exploiting in the Philippines, like the Australian mining industry, and they are an ally of the United States. So there's two reasons there uh, that explain, if you like, uh, well, their silence. And uh, But in Europe, again, there's a lot of European investments in the Philippines, but uh, I'm, I'm more aware that the, in the European Parliament, and, and therefore in some of the governments in Europe, there is an abhorrence at what's taking place in the Philippines so possibly it's in Europe where where the voice of the international community might come through more clearly but you know Australia is a close neighbor and uh, it's an embarrassment I think to us that uh, somehow we can't call the situation for what it is in our own neighborhood and in fact we're we're adding to the problem with our money and people.
1: And of course those who might want to go and witness what's happening or support the people uh, are prevented now
0: Yes, I think that uh, we've talked about this before but uh, uh, there's four or five Australians five who are on a blacklist including Sister Patricia Fox who was forced to leave the Philippines last uh, November and uh, there's been a few people from Europe, even from the European Parliament who have been turned away at the airport and several Missionaries you know people uh, associated with the broadly associated with Australia's uniting Church who from different parts of the world including from the United States, have been forced to leave and can't return so so there is a, a focus on um, closing off international witnessing international visitors interacting with uh, the communities on the ground who are suffering under the repression so you know, that's all very... It's a bad sign for what could come next. You know, it's, it's really, really what's going on is greater and greater isolation of communities who are somehow in the, in the way of uh, Duterte and his cronies. So, you know, people who want to seize... You know, this is so crude. You know, seize the lands of uh, farmers and Indigenous people for various forms of commercial development or mining... They are killing people and uh, forcing them off their lands, and uh, the witnesses are being removed. So that's what's going on.
1: On that sad note, I'll say goodbye <laughs> to now, Peter. Uh
0: <laughs> ah, dear, Jan. Okay, let's keep an eye on, uh, on what's happening in the Philippines because uh, I think yeah, this uh, election is, uh, is the f- a big shift, uh, and it's opening up doors for Duterte. So something will happen. Thank you Okay Bye bye Bye
1: -bye. And that's Peter Murphy Trade Union And Human rights activists And They're the stories That um, We do On 3CR That you won't find On the other media So Three weeks today The Radiothon For Tuesday Home time The 3CR Radiothon Is fast approaching
0: And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio.
1: That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits.
0: Your support, during Radiothon, powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year.
1: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon
0: 2019... June the third to the sixteenth.
1: Power Radical Radio. On the line now is Shirley Winton from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. And we're going to be talking about the conference coming up in August in Darwin. But first, Shirley, many people have been commenting on the election results and I'm sure that you'd like to contribute to that conversation.
3: There's huge, huge disappointment and, and in many ways despair by many, many people. You know, there's people feeling terribly devastated. There was so much put into, directed to into the parliamentary elections, into getting Labor in. My view is that the ALP and union leadership have pinned many working people's hopes to fervently, believe, fervently believing that change could simply be brought about by voting in parliamentary elections. So you had a situation where all the energy and enthusiasm for change but, those, but particularly by activists and supporters, you know, unionists and supporters, rank-and-file supporters of this, ILP progressive progressive people the climate change activists a lot of the energy was then channeled into parliamentarism and there wasn't any fallback position so that has left many devastators with no other strategy where to go to from now and I'm in mean, bell pass but but I think that what that that does indicate is that Campaigns like Change the Rules, which, you know, are really great. The fact that they were just channeled into Parliament and not, there was, and there was an absence of building the movement on the ground because that's where the real change will come from. They were neglected and it's just left a, a trail of, in many people's minds, a trail of devastation. So you've got to ask, well, you know, where does that leave long for the workers? ex-modal long-put workers who have been on the grass for two years and have been told to, you know, just take it easy, um, that it was just a matter of bringing in a Labor government and the rules will be changed. And even on that basis, there's there's no real guarantee for that. Where does that leave them now? Well, I think there's there's that that aspect to it and the reason why there is just so much despair at the moment because everything was, was directed at voting Labor in, that was the only strategy. There was no a much more realistic appraisal of, of Labor and even of how much Labor could deliver, in fact, even if it was elected. And the other aspect is that, you know, Labor presents an appearance of progressive agenda to social change and invoked Wicklum a couple of times, but it didn't touch the real decor of where the problem was. Like, for instance, the multinational corporations tax evasions and the power that they have. Now, if you look at Queensland, which has, you know, had a swing or whatever towards um, LNP, a lot of people there, you know, I'm, I'm talking about also supporters for One Nation and um, Clive Palmer's party. The common thread amongst a lot of these people is about the multinational corporations and the tax evasions. Now, if Labor... It had given more profile, more demands about the multinational tax evasion, which would pay, you know, the taxes, the multinational taxes, would pay for a lot of the promises that they had made, I think that they could have united a far greater, you know, across a, a far greater section of the population. I mean, whilst it's true about the franking and the superannuation it's really targeting small fish when it comes to where where your you know government revenue is going to come from and what by targeting franking and superannuation instead of the tax evasions by multinationals they actually gave ammunition to the the most reactionary forces to divide and frighten the people so i think that's really I, i think that's an aspect too you know, I know that in Queensland, that whole issue about the tax evasion by multinationals, the fact that you know you, you hear a lot of like farmers talk about you know the land that's being um, handed over to big corporations, about the, the issue with the water, the cotton growers, and Labor didn't pick up on that. I mean, that that's kind of a, in my way of thinking, that's a kind of a, a really central issue that you know a large section of Australian people do respond to.
1: And just farking back to your segment on the program last week relating to the Clary O'Shea struggle, and as you said then, it took 10 years building up to that big struggle. That's what we need now. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yep, yep. And, I mean, when you contrast, for instance, you contrast the Clary O'Shea struggle and the campaign and and the emphasis that was, was laid on building the movement on the ground to bring about change when you contrast that with this campaign, this, you know, with the, the most recent campaign that everything was put into, into you know, into the vote, that, that in itself. And the other aspect is that I think that in, during, in Clary O'Shea's day, that period, there's a much deeper awareness of the role of capital and where the power lies in our society and you look, and, and they understood that the power, how much power, you know, there is invested in by big business and big in parliament. And if you look at the elections now, and one of the aspects, apparently, uh, that influenced the vote, particularly in Queensland and around the whole of Australia, is the power of the Mur- Murdoch media and Clive Palmer's. And that the fact that he spent somewhere between 50 and 70 million on campaigning, knowing against Labour, knowing very well, I mean, he knew he, he wouldn't get in. But it was obviously a strategy that was used by the mostly extreme forces to use Palmer and to use, and Murdoch obviously was part of that strategy, sent fear to people about some of the,
6: you know, most
3: basic progressive policies. And obviously, the, the biggest sections of, of the ruling class in Australia wanted the return, well, not to the Morrison Morrison government. So I think that there's a big lesson. I hope that there's, you know, this lesson is is really taken up by the, the union movement and just generally in how we handle big campaigns and the, the total reliance on Parliament is just has never, never brought any achievements to working people. Even, even you know, some working class Wages and conditions—the most, some of the most basic improvements, the superannuation, the equal pay—it was the campaigns on the ground that forced Parliament, forced the, the charges, you know, legislative charges—and and I think that that was a big, a big, mistake that was made in during in the lead up to this election.
1: Also, what you were saying a moment ago about the media the, the concentration of media ownership. Of Murdoch in Australia, which has been here for quite a long time, but it, it has increased in recent years. And most capital cities don't have more than one newspaper; they rely on yep. Murdoch.
3: Yep. yep, yep, that's right. And apparently in Queensland, in particular, you know, in the in rural communities, But you're right. As far as I know, that there's just that Murdoch is media is the only one. And the few, some, I understand that, if, you know, some local, some local journalists, a group of journalists trying to, you know, try to set up a more independent newspapers in their localities. They just got trashed. They just got crushed by the power of Murdoch in terms of, of finance, of money. And that was the other thing that comes through in these elections is the power of, of capital, the power of money in influencing in parliamentary around the issues of parliamentary elections and getting in the person that the big end of town wants to be there.
1: It makes a bit of a mockery of democracy doesn't it?
3: A mockery of democracy, yes. Yeah, yeah, sadly it does. It does. And it's such a painful lesson too and such painful realisation, you know. I was talking to someone who on Sunday morning somebody who wanted to Longford workers to went for a walk and you know he was uh, pretty devastated and in his walk he came across um, a woman also during the walk and he greeted her good morning and she burst into tears she said what am I going to do now she works in a supermarket and she said you know she was in I don't know she's in her 40s and she said how am I going to retire? I haven't got any anything behind me, and she said, um, you know, the result of the elections just really floored her, and she was crying. So, you know, there'd be a lot of people like that, and you know, and I hear on the news this morning that Morrison's saying that the tax cuts that he was had promised, I'm not probably will to come in for another twelve months, anyway, mm. and then I imagine that in twelve months. 12 months' time, the economy will, you know, there'll be, possibly there'll be an economic sort of, I don't know about crisis, but there'll be some difficulties on the world economy, so there'll be another excuse not to, you know, again, defer the so-called tax cuts. And the tax cuts, this is a tax cuts for ordinary people, because in the meantime, big business and multinationals will continue to pay little, if any, tax anyway. It's a terribly be
0: to
1: listen. Well in amongst all of this comes the IPAN National Congress. I know it's not till August but it comes at a time of the largest contingent of US Marines in Darwin to train and prepare with Australia for what many people believe is a war with China. How are you going to address the conference? So the conference which is on the day
3: in Darwin it's the second, from the 2nd to the 4th of August and it's going to be held at the Charles Third University and it has the four main topics are uh, why Australia needs an independent foreign policy, the extent of foreign military facilities in Australia and that includes the US Pine Gap, other US bases and US Marines, the impact of militarism on the environment and the costs of militarism to Australians. Now, you know the the costs of militarism to Australians is a real, you know, would be a very topical issue in view of the fact that 20, I think it's that the the government has, I think over the next, within next 12 months, the military spending will be now 20 billion, and I, and within 10 years it will be 200 billion, and over and by the end of next year it will be 40 billion. So when you consider their mandates being spent on, which is basically propping up U.S. global military agendas, and that's what our so-called defence facilities and our defence policies are all about, to, to prop up the U.S. When you can to contrast that to... We'll continue, there'll be continuing cuts like in public service jobs, and that means Centrelink, continues cuts in... Services to people like in DIS. The fact that people on Newstart haven't had a, a rise for years and years. I think it's a it's it's a it's a really important and critical issue that the conference will, will rise. The other thing about the conference is, I think, um, with and linking it to the election of the of the government of the Morrison government, he, you might have heard, that Trump had called him sort of almost within minutes or within an hour or so of the election results coming in and congratulated him and I had a a long conversation about the the alliance, about the military alliance and what, you know, great partners and what role Australia could could continue, will continue and strengthen to serve in this alliance and they actually discussed Iran. Now there's, you know, at the moment the situation with the US foreign policy is that it's in constant conflict with it, Russia, with, with China and with Iran and the North Korea is hovering there in the background as well. So just even a, you know, an, an incident between the US and one of those countries could spark off a war and inevitably Australia will be drawn into, into that war. It is, it is a very... all these issues are very, very closely related. So, just a little bit about the Marines in Darwin. There's more um, information coming out about this fourth four, four posture agreement, which was signed in 2014 by the US and Australia, but it was actually agreed to in 2011-12 between Gillard's government of Obama and Clinton. By mid-July of this year, there'll be 2,000 Marines stationed in Darwin, and as you said, it'll be you know, the biggest uh, number of US Marines to date and obviously preparing for war with China, as you have said. At the same time, between the 11th and the 12th of July, there'll be a biannual talisman Saber joint military exercise off the coast of North Queensland and the Great Barrier Reef, and there'll be US, Australian, Japanese troops and also from Singapore. And this year they they will be practising a scenario, which is a war with China, and it'll involve the invasion and capturing of an island create a base from which to attack the mainland. And our dictionary is the new US strategy that it has not certainly not in this region have have implored or discussed. So it's obviously preparing war with China and Australia will undoubtedly be embroiled in it. And also recently um, US Marines have been practicing invasion and capture of Lushima Island which is off the coast of Okinawa. Again it's you know, do much more closer, sharper preparations for war. I think what we need to recognise is that the US is always preparing for war. So it's, you know, it's part of the nature of US imperialism, it's part of US, part of its economic and industrial complex, that it's always preparing for war because war unnecessary for the U.S. economy. Now, the other thing about involvement of Australia is that there's two Australian warships, HMA's Adelaide and Canberra, and they've been modified to transport amphibious landing gear, which is invasion, and they've also had U.S. Marines embedded in them. Now, you've got to ask, what is the purpose for Australian warships to be equipped with amphibious landing gear if not for invasions and offensive wars? Again, it's that, you know, Australia being in Australia's interoperability, military interoperability with the U.S. So it's, you know, the conference, it will be very, is very important. Richard Tanto will be speaking to Professor Lisa Natividad from Guam. I think people have heard Lisa speak before. Robin Tobenfeld from Friends of the Earth. John Pilger will be speaking via, via video link. Some of the other speakers will include Warren Smith from the MUA also talking on, on the military spending or who pays for Australia's interoperability with, with the US. Margie Beavis will be speak, also speaking on, the, on the, the costs of militarism to Australians and there will be some key speakers on US Marines in Darwin. I should say that there's a a big public relations exercise that's going on in Darwin at the moment to uh, propaganda, possibly in response to this conference being held where the U.S. Marines are being strongly promoted for being economically and socially beneficial to, to Northern Territory. And there's a, a little quote from, um, from, a, from a Marine who said, I hear a lot of great things from the guys I've met in the Defence Force in this town. All the crocodile stuff. I mean, you know, it, it kind of really reflects the, the attitude of, I'm not saying this particular one Marine, but it's the attitude of, of the American government to Australia and what purpose we serve, which is basically a base for US war with China and in the region. So people are really encouraged and urged to come to the conference. It will be an important conference, or well, it is an important conference. The elections have sort of overshadowed and took attention away from the, from the preparations for war and Australia's deeper integration into the US military. Now that we're after the elections, I think that there'll be more evidence coming out and about the dangers of our alliance, Australia's alliance with, with the US. So the, the conference, people can um, book. You need to, if possible, try to book Um, You can register online at Eventbrite. You can get all this information on IPAN's website, Mm -hmm. Independent Peaceful Australia Network website, or you can actually go to Eventbrite, .eventbrite www.eventbrite.com.au, IPAN Darwin tickets, conference tickets. But if you just Google Independent Peaceful Australia Network, they'll take you directly to to all the information about the, the conference or you can email, which is ipad.australia at com. So if people are having difficulties finding cheap accommodation, we can also arrange with some of our friends who, who live in Darwin.
1: And that's Shirley Winton from Independent Pacific, Independent Peaceful and Independent Australian Network. Speaking about the elections, speaking about... Um, The U.S. Marines in the Darwin and what's likely to come from that in the next few years. You can see the preparations happening, but you can see the preparations in many places in the world. And if it all comes to, as as people think, there's going to be a lot of trouble in the world on top of what's already there at the moment. So it's something we've got to keep our eyes on and make sure that we are up to date on what they are up to. It's 4.43 and a half, and coming up in a moment, I'll be speaking to May, a young Palestinian activist. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching.
0: And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio.
1: That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than
0: profits. Your support, June Radiothon, powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year.
1: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019
0: June the 3rd to the 16th.
1: Power Radical Radio.
4: Attention book lovers, the new international bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the Book Fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 three seven double four. That's nine double six two three seven double four. The new international bookshop
1: three I'm speaking now with May, Palestinian activist. May the unexpected victory of the coalition from the elections on Saturday. Michael Sheik on the Palestine Remembered program last Saturday said that Shorten was no friend of Palestine. Morrison is an enemy. What are your thoughts?
6: I think that a lot of Liberal government leaders have consecutively uh, not been supportive of Palestinian rights, let alone Palestinian human rights, within the conflict. We've time and again um, haven't seen them condemn the disproportionate of killings of Palestinians. They haven't condemned the illegal settlements. And I think... For Palestinians, I don't believe that they see the Liberal Party as uh, friends or supporters, unfortunately. So I can understand why Michael uh, would say that Scott Morrison isn't a friend nor a supporter of Palestinians because it hasn't been the fact for the Liberal Party at all, um, let alone Scott Morrison.
1: And also the fact that the Liberal Party got rid of Melissa Park must be very difficult for politicians to come out and support Palestine as well in that sort of milieu
6: Correct, I think um, there has been a history of trying to silence Palestinian supporters or you know, Palestinians requesting or any supporters requesting to hold Israel accountable its policies accountable for the violence that exists in the region and for, you know, the illegal settlements and the dispossession of Palestinians from their homes. And if you do come out and, you know, hold Israel accountable for its policies, then you're generally attacked for it and silenced. And so I think that it's quite problematic when you have individuals who say we need to hold a government accountable for its policies and for the violence that it inflicts, that somehow you're saying something so radical. It's not radical. We hold every government to account here in Australia. As citizens of this country, we're able to do that. But yet somehow we can't do that for another country where it's disproportionately killing and victimising Palestinian people. That somehow we can't criticise the policy and how it affects their human rights seems to be uh, the lay of the land.
1: Another event which culminated at the weekend was the 2019 Eurovision final, and I'd just like to read you a couple of short paragraphs. As Eurovision proceedings came to an end in apartheid Tel Aviv, the winner is already clear, the boycott, divestment and sanctions BDS movement for Palestinian rights. More than 160,000 petitions urging the boycott of the contest, hundreds of leading Artists led their support, including former Eurovision contestants and one winner, and well over 100 LGBT-plus organisations and centres joined the calls. I know there's been opposition in the past, but this year I believe it's the most vocal. Would you agree? I think
6: in terms of Eurovision, there's a sense of whitewashing Israeli crimes and Israeli policies where, you know, the Palestinian story isn't being told or ex- expressed there that the very idea that you can have this international concert <laughs> and celebration and yet not recognizing just a few meters away that there is an oppressed Palestinian <laughs> citizenship where <laughs> they have no basic human rights they're under Israeli occupation in effect um, there are illegal settlements um, that are daily taking away Palestinian homes and dispossessing them of the, their lands and yet somehow they're not in the narrative. That that history and that policy of the Israeli state is being pushed aside to celebrate and have this good old time and yet a few metres away people are dying. Um, people are being forced out of their homes. People don't have the same rights as an Israeli citizen. They are second-class citizens also within the Israeli state, and, you know, Palestinians within the West Bank have to contend with the occupation. And then, yet again, a few metres away, you have the Gaza Strip, where it's the biggest open-air prison. It is completely embargoed and surrounded by the Israeli state, and, you know, within a year, it's going to be uninhabitable for human life. And that's really concerning, that these issues are there on the ground, and yet, this international song contest can occur and there's no acknowledgement of, I guess, the oppression of the Palestinian people. Can you talk a
1: bit about the opposition that was expressed worldwide?
6: I think it's really heartening that a lot of people around the world are recognizing that, you know, the Israeli state and its policies, it's not this uh, rosy democratic country. It's built on the back of oppression and apartheid. And there are people around the world that can very clearly recognize this and have come out in support of the Palestinian people because at the end of the day, you're coming out in support of human rights. You're coming out in support of people where you don't support oppression, you don't support apartheid, and you don't support indiscriminate killing. You don't support um, people being treated as second-class citizens. You're actually coming out and saying... We support the right for an individual to live peacefully and not be at the threat of violence by a state um, and its policies. So I think it's really heartening that that's happened. And I believe you would be aware that there was a musical event that was held in um, Bethlehem on the ni- last night of the finale, of the Eurovision finale. And quite a lot of supporters performed in Bethlehem and I believe in London and other parts of the world in Dublin and advertised that. In opposition to the Eurovision finale,
1: was that Global Vision?
6: I believe so.
1: Madonna was paid a huge amount of money to go. There was a big campaign to try and stop her, but in a, in a sense, she did make it political. Are you aware of that?
6: I had heard of that loosely. And I, I'm well aware that part of the BDS is trying to in, you know, encourage artists themselves to look at the situation and take a humanitarian position and not perform in Israel, not whitewash the crimes of the state. Um, I'm not surprised, I suppose, that there are performers that went and performed in Israel because it very much so made it very clear what their politics is. And I think that's up to Madonna to sort of have to take into consideration why she supports Israeli policy, why she supports the occupation of Palestinians and why she felt the need to make that political statement. I think, you know, people should be held accountable for the positions that they take and, the, you know, the policies that they hold.
1: Last Wednesday was Nakba, the Day of Catastrophe. It was okay. commemorated the 71st anniversary of the displacement. How did that affect your family? What have you been told about that time?
6: Well, I think for many Palestinians, we are a product of the Nakba. So, my family um, were dispossessed in, um, in 1948. Uh, my family's family, many were dispossessed in 1967. Uh, many have been dispossessed of home, their homes during the um, build of the illegal settlement. The Nakba story hasn't ended for Palestinians, it's ongoing. The first story of the dispossession of Palestinians from their homes started in 1948, but it hasn't ended. Palestinians are still being forced out of their homes um, in, in Jerusalem um, and in various parts of the West Bank. So for many Palestinians, it isn't over. And for many Palestinians who live in Australia, that family history still exists. We still have relatives that live in Palestine who have to contend with the formation of illegal settlements um, and the disposition of their land, many who are being forced out of their homes. And yet, al Nakba, for many Palestinians, is an ongoing story, the ongoing Palestinian story. It hasn't ended, and I think for a Palestinian living in Australia, where we get to enjoy you know basic human rights and we have we get to enjoy the idea of being able to own our own homes and live in our own homes without the threat of someone taking it away from us forcibly it does hit home because it reminds you that actually your family you know, your ancestors didn't get to enjoy that story in fact they're constantly being dispossessed of their homes so I think for many of us it is that ongoing story.
1: And, of course, now Palestinians are scattered over many countries in the world. Correct.
6: I have family everywhere in the world. I have family in Europe and America and South America, everywhere in the world. And, frankly, I make a joke of it where I can say, well, I can just pick a country and I'm sure I'll have a relative in it. I can just visit them and I'll have a place to stay. (laughs) So... I mean, yes, we are. We all have a very unique Palestinian story. Those who ended up in refugee camps in Lebanon, those who ended up in America, um, Europe, um, some who ended up in various parts of the Middle East, many of us who ended up here in Australia. We all have a specific Palestinian story, and that's that of being made refugees, <laughs> being forced out of our homes and not really being a cho- given a choice in the matter
1: the really sad part of it is, that you mentioned then the refugees in Lebanon and in those dreadful camps where yeah. people have virtually no rights at all and, and, the, and the country doesn't want them there, but they've got nowhere to go back.
6: Correct. And you find that that's a very big story for a lot of Palestinians. And look, I have family that have been made refugees three, four times in a row. You know, family that were in Kuwait, ended up in Iraq, then ended up in Syria and then ended up in Turkey and there are generational refugees that exist and yet they've got nowhere to go. So they're always trying to seek a place to be able to live their lives and achieve the basic things that is humans that we want, stability, home, safety, just to make a life where you're not constantly being persecuted for your very identity. And a lot of Palestinians are still going through that refugee story in different ways. But yes, a lot of um, countries where Palestinians are residing aren't wanted and you know don't have basic rights. So the Al Nakba isn't just the story of dispossessing Palestinians of their homes, it's the story of their refugees. What happened to them? And a lot of the times you find, like in places, in various refugee camps, the conditions are not great.
1: Far from it. What's planned for next Saturday?
6: So on Saturday we're holding a vigil slash protest for al-Nakba and we encourage it will be in front of the State Library at 11am to 1pm and we're hoping to have um, encourage as much peace people as possible to come to share with us uh, the Palestinian story to commemorate, I suppose, the al-Nakba and the, the Palestinian will and resistance against the continual dispossession of our homes, but to just have those who support us with us on that day. And you'll find quite a lot of Palestinian people within the community will be quite happy and grateful to have all our supporters with us. And at the same time, it's a chance for us to be heard, um, a chance for Palestinians to be heard in Melbourne and recognised that this is our story and it's still ongoing. And we do appreciate any support that we get. And I would like to encourage that if you support human rights, if you support the right for people to live in their homes peacefully without the threat of violence or dispossession, I would highly encourage you to come out and show your support and hear some of the stories of the Palestinians and what they've gone through.
1: Thanks, Ma. Thank you. That's this Saturday at the State Library. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Done By Law. Bye now.